Let's talk about the police in uh, the city of Vancouver and Vancouver police officers in action this morning, clearing out that blockade of the uh, viaducts that we've seen in place for the last few days. Let's check in with Adam Palmer now. He is the police of the Vancouver Police Department. I'm very pleased you could take the time this morning. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Appreciate it a lot. A busy day for you. Let's just, can you give us an update quickly on, first of all, on the viaduct situation? It sounds like the, those protesters have been cleared out there, out of there peacefully. Have you received any reports on that? Yeah, so that's something that started a couple of days ago. We had some people, um, you know, start out their exercise in their lawful right to protest in Canada. And we always try to facilitate lawful protest. Uh, however, when you get to the point where you're blocking streets, uh, in this case, the viaducts for extended periods of time, we do have to move in at some point when it's safe to do so. But we make sure that we talk to all the parties involved and we always want a peaceful resolution. So we're just working through that with the protesters and that's, uh, that's moving along well. Are there any arrests there this morning, to your knowledge? Um, I know there was a couple of people that were interested in being arrested. Like the way that we'll approach these is we'll go up and we'll talk to the folks and uh, people will identify who wants to be arrested, who's going to walk away peacefully. Most walk away peacefully. But as far as uh, number of arrests, if any, I don't have those numbers right now. But it's quite possible there could be a few. Okay. How do you feel about approaching a situation like that? Do you, when you have a protesters like this, police are moving in. In the environment that we're in today with the heightened awareness of police conduct, do your guys, uh, do you instruct your people to proceed any differently in a case like that? Yeah, so we're very used to dealing with protests in Vancouver. We've been dealing with them for, you know, many, many decades, you know, really probably over 100 years. So for a long time, and it evolves constantly. And the, the process that we take in Vancouver, uh, we do have demonstration guidelines that we post publicly so everybody knows what they are. And we take a very thoughtful, measured approach. And we always try and reach out to the people that are organizing the protesters. And we don't want to have it, you know, come to a you know, major confrontation in the streets. We'd rather work things out peacefully. Uh, the officers, uh, to your question, are very aware of that, how our system works. And, you know, the, everybody's aware that everything they're doing now is filmed and on camera. And it's a very public, uh, you know, type of environment that we police in. But we're totally fine with that. That's the way society is. And, and we accept yeah. that. But we'll work through these things. Yeah, we've seen so many protests recently, largely, of course, across the United States, but we've seen protests in Canada. We've seen calls for police reform in our own country. I mean, if we take a look just across the border in Seattle, where there's a part of downtown Seattle has been cordoned off, and they call it an autonomous zone, where the, mm -hmm. police, are, the police are not going in there. When you see something like that as, as the police, as the chief of police in Vancouver, what goes through your mind? Are you thinking to yourself, I wonder if, something, if they might try something like that here? Well, we realize, you know, you know, this all started, of course, down in Minneapolis, and we're all watching the world events, what's happening. And this is not, you know, particular to Vancouver. It's happening all over the Western world and the United States and Canada, Europe, Australia. These sorts of protests are happening everywhere. But, of course, when we see something as close to home as Seattle and we see that, you know, Capitol Hill, Chaz movement that has started down there, that is definitely something that we're watching closely and, you know, monitoring our, our own situation here in Vancouver. We yeah, don't want that to happen here. Right. And when you watch that, in, do, you think the, do you think they've made mistakes down there? Just sort of basically surrendering control of a big chunk of the city like that? What do you think? Well, I'm that? not going to make comments on what Seattle police um, did or didn't do, because yeah. I know the um, chief of Seattle very well, Carmen Best, and she's a very accomplished leader, and I have a lot of respect for her. But I also know that there's a political environment down there that can be challenging to navigate.
Now, speaking to Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, speaking of Minneapolis, I think this is the first opportunity I've had to speak to you since the events that erupted in the United States with the death of George Floyd. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the current situation. And when you first saw that George, the video of George Floyd with that police officer with his, his knee on his neck and he, he lost his life, what went through your mind? What did you think of that? And what do you think about what's ha- been happening since? Well, it was terrible. I remember watching it. I was actually sitting in my office and I heard about it and I was watching it on my computer and it was difficult to watch. And as a police officer, but, you know, especially just as a human being, when you're seeing something like that, um, just really terrible to watch. And that was a criminal act. And, uh, you know, those officers have to be held fully accountable for their actions. Just terrible to watch. Yeah, like when you see an officer like that with a, a knee on a neck like that, uh, restraining someone on the ground, is is that a, a tactic that you would ever approve or that is allowed in Vancouver or anywhere in Canada, to your knowledge? No, I mean, when you're taking somebody down, there are tactics where you are going to, you know, try and roll people over and put handcuffs on them. And sometimes people struggle and don't want to put their hands out. Uh, behind their back and you know there are techniques where you put pressure on their arms or on their back for sure that's a normal way of getting control of somebody and things happen really quickly you know in the uh, middle of an all-on fight but putting pressure on somebody's neck is not something that we we teach and in addition to that I mean that went well beyond just putting handcuffs on somebody after that person was handcuffed they have to be treated respectfully and looked after you don't you know remain putting pressure on somebody that's just horrific Okay, we've seen demands for police reform. We hear some people calling to defund the police. We saw the mayor of Vancouver last week call for a comprehensive review of policing, not only in Vancouver, but throughout all of British Columbia. We got the provincial government saying they're looking at the Police Act and they may change it. In your mind, given all of that, do the poli- do, does the P- Vancouver police need to be reformed? Well, the issue of defunding the police and police reform you know obviously uh, i was aware of that press conference and saw the remarks by the mayor and the premier uh if there is any kind of provincial review we're happy to participate in that you know we're very confident we have very good processes here in vancouver but by the same token you know we do listen to the community and we're watching world events and you know we have to evolve as well and as things are changing and if the general public is not happy with the way things are. We have to be responsive to that and listen to that. But I would say we do have a very good system of policing here in Canada generally and in Vancouver. Um, you know, very um, proud of the method that we do police the city and keep people safe. On the issue that you talked about defunding the police, I think yeah. that, you know, that has really taken on again over the internet. We're getting all kinds of form letters. You know, you can go to websites and download a form letter for your particular city and Police chiefs across North America and beyond are receiving, and city councils, these form letters that are coming in by people. But defund the police is just a hashtag. It's, it's an emotional response to some tragic events that happened. Um, it's not a plan. I mean, I think that if we're going to talk about changing the public safety system in Canada, police leaders are very happy to sit down at the table and have thoughtful, informed, evidence-based discussion And as a matter of fact, many of these things that are coming out are things that the police have been asking for for years, for more supports for mental health, housing, addiction. And, you know, we're very in tune to these issues. And I have reports that we've done ourselves in Vancouver that have asked for those things from over the past 10 years. Right. Speaking to Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, like when when people say the police should be defunded, they they raise similar points to the ones that you just mentioned. Like, why why are police dealing with issues of homelessness and mental health and addictions 
and wellness checks? Shouldn't that be done by frontline social workers or something like that? Do, do you think that, do you agree that maybe police officers should not be handling calls like that? And maybe they could set up a different kind of first response system to deal with situations that fall into those categories? I think that there's definitely room for moving some of that stuff that police do over to other service providers, absolutely. But I think it's also important to have an informed context and really understand that the work that the police do, because many of these calls, it's not as easy to say that all of a sudden we're going to remove police from dealing with people in mental health crisis, because many of these calls, and you know, we work very closely with um, coastal health and other mental health providers already, as do other agencies across Canada. But many of these calls we go to, people are in severe crisis, sometimes having psychotic episodes, sometimes armed with weapons, they're a danger to themselves or others, you know, jumping off bridges, wading into water to, to drown themselves, setting, you know, their building. We had one recently down on Drake Street where a fellow serious mental health episode set his apartment on fire and he was armed with knives and wasn't going to let anybody in and come and put out the fire. So there's nobody that can deal with that except the police in concert with the fire department. And many of these other calls I've mentioned, you're not going to have a a psych nurse or a social worker with a clipboard just go in on their own and deal with many of these types of dangerous calls that we deal with and think that just because it's mental health that a social worker or mental health professional can deal with it better because they don't want to go in alone when it's that dangerous. And we're, we're very well trained on how to deal with those, but I think with some of the lower level ones, for sure, uh, we need more supports that other people could take on. When I listened to the mayor last week talk about his call for a review of policing and you listen to some advocates who are calling for defunding and reforming the police, one of the issues they bring up frequently in Vancouver is a street check street Mm -hmm. checks where a police officer will stop someone on the street you've got critics who will say that police are be uh, police are stopping people arbitrarily maybe based on their their race or appearance what are your what are your thoughts on street checks well that's a very contentious issue and we have done you know extensive study here in vancouver as well as having you know there's been other studies across the country our police board uh made a really good call back in 2018 and had independent Uh, consultants, academics come in and do a review of street checks in Vancouver. Um, There was a very thorough report that was produced. It's public record. And since that time, there's also been changes to provincial police standards where um, they were announced in December of 2019 and they came into effect, I think it was January 15th of this year. And this affects all police in British Columbia and all police in British Columbia do have policies now that fall in line with these provincial standards. I understand how um, police uh, street checks can be very controversial and how people have very passionate views about that. I totally understand it. But we have to balance that with also, you know, police doing their job and being able to, you know, in the middle of the night, if you see somebody that's prowling a business or cruising down a laneway with a a flashlight looking into vehicles, we have to have the ability to, you know, meet up with public expectations as well, that I think the police, if you saw that happening behind your house, you would want the police to pull up and, you know, ask this person what they're doing, shining a light into your car. So there's a balance there. But with the new standards that have come into effect, um, our street checks in Vancouver were already very low, about one per month per officer, and they're about 10% of that now. So now, um, this year, they're down to like 90% reduction from what they were last year. All right, welcome back. Continuing my conversation now with Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer. In, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, we see a lot of emphasis on police reform, police misconduct, a lot of questions about whether there is institutional or uh, structural racism uh, in the in police 
police forces in North America. What are your thoughts on that in, in Vancouver? Do you think there's any st- structural or internal racism in the Vancouver Police Department? Yeah, so my comments on that, I just think when we look at Canadian society as a whole, we have to remember that we do have a very long history of racism in Canada, you know, dealing you know, with uh, Chinese Canadians going back to the 1800s and more recently even with COVID-19 and all the anti-Asian racist attacks and acts that we saw. Japanese internment during World War II, our Indigenous communities have been treated terribly over the years, like just, you know, horrific injustices in residential schools. Our black communities, our Jewish community, Jewish community actually had, traditionally has the highest number of hate incidents in Vancouver. Um, South Asian community with the Kamigata Maru, um, our LGBTQ community. So there's a long history of racist acts and treatment of people in this country as a whole. Um, and policing, you know, is not immune to people that may have racist views. But one thing I want to say is that um, we do not have a bunch of racists working here at VPD. And I completely would take offense to anybody that suggests that. Because if you think about it, if you take the premise that society as whole has people in it that will be racist, the thing that's different in policing is that our recruiting standards and background checks and investigations are very extensive that you don't see in other occupations. So if somebody wants to get into, you know, media or nursing or healthcare or teaching, they have educational requirements that they have to meet, just like we do in policing. But the only type of background check you would get in many of those other occupations is really a criminal records check, which is very cursory. The sort of background check and screening process we put police officers through is extensive. And we hire very good people, very diverse people, and our our officers are exceptional. And then the training that we give them, uh, not only at the police academy, but also in service training, in cultural sensitivity, fair and impartial policing, um, implicit bias, de-escalation, is extraordinary. And I know that some other occupations will receive training in you know cultural sensitivity and um, awareness but it's not to the extent that you receive in police and then the oversight that we have here is far beyond any other occupation so the accountability mike is incredible in policing compared to regular society Uh, despite despite all that though we continue to see incidents right and we see investigations like people might remember the case of a guy named jamiel moore williams who was uh, tasered repeatedly for jaywalking we saw the the bc human rights tribunal order the Vancouver Police Board to pay $20,000 in damages to a woman because they felt that she had been um, discriminated against as an, an Indigenous person. Uh, we saw the uh, that young girl and her, uh, hand, and her grandfather handcuffed after they tried to open a, a bank account and did, again, Indigenous uh, people. Um, are these, uh, how do you describe these incidents? Are these isolated or do they, are they a representative of something else? Well, all of those incidents that you mentioned all happened. And, you know, we have to remember that we're dealing with human beings and society asks police to go out there and take on all these things. And they ask us to go out there and deal with things in the moment, respond to 911 calls, respond to very challenging situations, some dangerous, some not, but many of the calls that we go to are challenging. And often we're dealing with people really on the worst day of their life and people that are having, you know, very difficult episodes, either it could be mental health or it could just be they're emotionally distraught or in an episode of violence, but they're in crisis in many cases. So, and, and also you have people out there, quite frankly, Mike, that are just dangerous people and criminals and predators and organized crime figures and different types. So okay. we're dealing with all different aspects of society. And when you put human beings dealing with other human beings, things will sometimes go awry and things will sometimes be caught up in the moment that right. when you go back and dissect it, things 
perhaps we could have done better. Like nobody's okay. denying that. But these are difficult positions we put these officers in. <clears throat> All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk now about the overdose death crisis and what is driving it. In the month of May, British Columbia recorded 170 illicit drug overdose deaths, the highest monthly total ever recorded in this province. That's average about 5.5 overdose deaths a day. It's a 93% spike over the same number of deaths in the same month the year before. It's a 44% increase over the previous month this year. What is causing this spike in overdose deaths in our province and also across Canada? Well, it's got to be the COVID-19 pandemic, right? I mean, people are sheltering in their homes. They're using drugs alone. Uh, people are having, are, are, there's a, with the border restrictions on, on dr- the drug supply, there is more toxic supply of drugs on the street, we're told. But think about this. What about all the money that's flowing into neighborhoods like the downtown east side, like the CERB, $2,000 a month? Does that money present a temptation for struggling users to spend that money on drugs and overdose during this pandemic? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Terry Lake. He's a former health minister in British Columbia. He was part of the previous liberal government that declared the opioid crisis a public health emergency. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Hi, thanks a lot. I, I remember when you were health minister, when we first started experiencing a lot of the problems with opioids and the health crisis that your government uh, declared a, a public health emergency. L- l- give me your thoughts on the, the overdose numbers that we're seeing right now. I mean, this is tragic. I mean, this is just heartbreaking, the number of deaths we're seeing. What do you think is driving it? Well, first of all, it is uh, absolutely tragic. And, you know, uh, as Dr. Henry has indicated, every person who's died, uh, you know, was someone's uh, son, a brother, father, uh, daughter, sister. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking to see these numbers climbing when we had made significant progress uh, with a steady decline in the number of people dying from opioid overdoses. So you mentioned some of the drivers, uh, you know, the, the supply chain of, of drugs has been interrupted because of the border restrictions. And, just like any other uh, supply chain, it changes the mix of the product, and the the drugs are more toxic, uh, and you know the higher concentration of fentanyl, more benzodiazepines mixed in, which don't respond to naloxone. People using alone, all of those are huge factors, and probably very much driving the increase. Uh, and it's not perhaps popular to say that the increase in money in the system may be a factor as well. And talking to uh, harm reduction and housing providers in the interior of BC, they've had firsthand experience with this, where their vulnerable clients all of a sudden have a lot of money and often have been encouraged to apply for CERB, even though they may not qualify, by those willing uh, and, and wanting to sell them illicit drugs. And so we know when we have check issue day, for instance, for income assistance, that we tend to get an increase in overdose deaths, or at least overdoses. Um, and so there's a lot of speculation that this may be fueling the increase in, uh, in toxic uh, drug use and leading to overdose deaths. Okay, you're not the only one who is making this connection. I have talked to some frontline healthcare workers who have, have seen the damage up close from opioid addiction and drug overdoses, uh, putting together, connecting the same dots and saying that when people have got this money in their hands, 
if they're desperately addicted, uh, they will they will spend on 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 these dangerous drugs. And there may be situations where, like you said, there could be drug dealers encouraging people to s- apply for this money, even though they may not qualify for the serve. But we know that this is an e- this is easy money to get. It appears. Do, do you think? Yeah. I mean, do you believe that? Do you think that's going on? That p- that people are being encouraged to get this money to spend on drugs when they, they don't even maybe qualify for the program? Well, I absolutely know that it's going on. Um, you know, and and some people have been able to take that infusion of of cash and use it to lift themselves up and uh, right. get on a better path. And so, I don't want to, um, you know, get, make the case that everyone is taking advantage and 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 buying more drugs. Some people are. This has really helped a lot of people. And there's no question that we we should be providing more supports to people before the pandemic. Uh, you know, just as a as a part of our policy. Uh, to help lift people out of poverty. So that's not uh, a question. It's the rapid influx of money without the mitigation uh, measures there to, you know, more uh, social workers, more people helping uh, those that are vulnerable deal with this kind of situation. So, you know, we can't stick our heads in the sand and, and, and pretend that it may be a, it may not be a factor. We have to consider all of these things. And let's take some bold steps. You know, we're taking super bold steps for the COVID-19 pandemic, which has uh, taken about 165, 170 lives in British Columbia. But in one month alone, we saw that many people die from drug overdoses, and we're not being bold enough uh, to take more measures that will help people. What do you think should be done? I mean, when it comes to the CERB money that may be partially driving this, I mean, do you think the government should be cutting people off from this money? Uh, well, I think already we're seeing, you know, tighter uh, regulation around applying for CERB. The CRA is, you know, starting to become more active in that regard. But I think, um, you know, uh, housing providers and uh, harm reduction providers need to be um, counseling people about uh, CERB. And so that that's one factor. But, I mean, I think we need much, much older measures, Mike. We need to yeah. have... Um, we need to decriminalize the the use of small amounts of, of uh, illicit drugs so that people don't have the stigma uh, associated with drug use that they will then reach out uh, for services much more readily than they do today. Perhaps uh, it will make life a lot safer for people if they don't worry about uh, being criminalized. Uh, we need to provide more uh, safe supply of, uh, of uh, opioids for people that that are addicted to, to uh, opioids. And, you know, we're seeing that a little bit in British Columbia, but we can take much larger steps. We've listened to Dr. Henry uh, so closely when she's talked about all the things we need to do to combat COVID-19. But she's also said we need to decriminalize the use of uh, small amounts of, right. of illicit drugs. And so why aren't yeah. we listening to her there as well? Okay, when you talk about decriminalizing the possession of these drugs, you're talking about all drugs, so heroin, fentanyl, like if you possess small amounts of these drugs, that should not be a crime, is that what you're saying? Uh, Absolutely, all drugs, and you know, I'm I'm not saying make them legal like cannabis, I'm saying let's decriminalize it so that um, people will access services without stigma. Um, You know, the the sort of greatest threat to a person's health is, is ending up in jail. Uh, they're less likely to access services. They're less likely to have uh, success finding a job afterwards. Um, let's take a different approach. And, you know, the federal government, I've broached this with the prime minister, and they're not ready to do that. But there has been 
lots of positive signals that say that why don't we try this in British Columbia? Uh, but the premier and, and the government so far hasn't been willing to take that step. But you know, mm. with with drug deaths going up so quickly. Um, why not take that step? What have we got to lose? Okay. Speaking to former BC Health Minister Terry Lake, when you talk about a, a safe drug supply, so there's been talk about, okay, people are going to use anyway, the drugs that are available on the street are poison and killing people, so we should allow people to have access to, what, prescription heroin, pharmaceutical-grade drugs? Is, is that your proposal? Does, what about the, the argument that that's enabling people and you're addicting even more people when you do that? Well, that's, um, you know, it's a zombie argument because, you know, I don't know anyone that wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I, my life goal is to become uh, addicted to uh, to substances. People find themselves uh, with problematic substance use for a number of different reasons, but we know childhood trauma is big, poverty is big, uh, genetics plays a role, of course, uh, mental health plays a role, but you don't find that once harm reduction services are provided that people use more drugs. Um, they, they are, people use opioids, for instance, not really to get high, uh, as much as they do to not get sick. If you have experienced uh, withdrawal from opioids, it's a terrible, terrible situation for people physically. And so they're, they're going out to get drugs so that they don't feel sick. So let's give them a safe supply, uh, that will help them reduce their illicit drug uh, use. It, it may not eliminate, eliminate it completely, but it will reduce it perhaps. It will connect them to service providers so that maybe the tenth time, uh, that they try, uh, getting on a better path, they're, they're successful. So, you know, people say that, you know, we can't do this. It's giving, giving people, uh, you know, this, this poison, if you like. Um, I don't understand why people think it will affect their lives. If they don't have problematic substance use, how does it affect their life if we give people a safe what supply about, so that we can help them? What about treatment and recovery, which I think is underemphasized sometimes? I, I just imagine, I picture a parent maybe of, of, a, of a child who's become addicted to opioids and they're desperate, they're looking for help. Do you want the government to say to you, it's okay, we're going to make sure they get safe drugs? Or do you want to hear that your child is going to be put into treatment so that that person can kick this ha- kick this addiction and recover from drug addiction? Shouldn't we be doing more on that? All right, welcome back, Mike Smith. This uh, my guest is Keith Baldry, Global News Bureau Chief at the BC Legislature. Baldry's beat. Hey, Keith. Hey, Mike. Okay, earlier on the show, I talked to Terry Lake. Remember him, the oh, former, yeah. the former um, good health minister, former health minister. He was health minister for many years uh, in the previous Liberal government, and he dealt with the opioid overdose crisis mm-hmm. when the Liberals were in power. And it was the Liberals actually declared a public health emergency yep. back then. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of people, kick the Liberals for being uh, for for not addressing the crisis adequately. The NDP took a lot, of, tore a lot of strips off them over that. But they did declare it a public health emergency, and he was right in there. So one of the things he said was he he believes that. Uh, the overdose crisis is being caused by a lot of different things and the people using drugs alone during this mm-hmm. pandemic, the tightened border restrictions leading to more, potentially leading to a more poisonous drug supply in the streets. But he also thought that the availability, the wide availability of government money, primarily the $2,000 a month CERB benefit, mm-hmm. could be fueling the drug overdose yeah. death rate. As people get this money into their hands, people are desperately addicted 
guess what? They spend on drugs. It's this is an, an old story. I mean, we see we see kind of drug user rates potentially go up on on check days, well, for, for example, when yeah. people get uh, their employment insurance. We had an, a lot of interesting calls in the open line, frontline healthcare workers yep. phoning and saying, "Yeah, I'm seeing this up close." Your thoughts? Yeah, that you had that one um, a nurse, I think, phone in uh, frontline nurse saying she that sees she, it. She sees it every day. Yeah. That uh, extra few hundred dollars in people's hands translates into more drug use. I think Terry Lake's right. I mean, and at least a little point, the chief coroner and Dr. Bonnie Henry agree on some key points with Terry Lake. The pandemic is driving these numbers right now. People are isolated. They're using drugs alone. People aren't checking on each other as much as they used to, right. uh, which saved literally so many people uh, in the, before the pandemic. Then you throw in the CERB, and neither LaPointe or Henry have addressed the CERB aspect, but Terry Lake's not the only one to point out CERB is putting money into the hands of people who are addicted and a substantial more money. And it's obvious that if you're an addict, your first priority is to, to satiate your addiction. Uh, so, but I'm not sure what the answer is. Well, that's like, the thing. You're that's not going to kill thing. the CERB. I mean, yeah. CERB is serving millions of people right now who are yeah. not drug addicts, who need this money literally to survive. So right. that's not, and Trudeau today announced uh, it's going to be extended. No surprise. Uh, but, you know, maybe it gets tinkered with. Uh, small business owners, talk to a number of them who say they can't hire back their staff because they're earning, their part-time staff, because they're earning more on the CERB than they would be if they were getting paid to actually work. That's a, that's a bit of a wrinkle or a loophole that may be fixed over time. But I'm not sure how you translate um, the CERB into denying it from people who have addiction issues. I just don't see how that works. Well, I guess you could make an argument that some people are getting the CERB that do not qualify for it. They're not eligible for it. There are lots of stories out there of drug dealers who are encouraging people to apply, yeah. apply for this lots benefit. Lots of fraud. Yeah, that's going on. I mean, that, but like you said, what do you do about it? I mean, do you cut people off? I don't think you can. No, I don't think you can. And I think it's either something you just have to learn to live with in this new reality we're all in in this pandemic. We're doing things we never thought possible before. I mean, CERB is basically the equivalent of a guaranteed annual income, which has been the subject of debate for decades. Should we have something like this? And uh, so many governments said, no, we can't afford something like that. Well, now we have a guaranteed annual income, and it's just been extended. It's, we haven't got to an annual part of this, but it's a guaranteed income, and that was just unheard of months ago. With the record number of overdose deaths we see in the province last month, though, I wonder if there's pressure on the Horgan government here right now to be doing more to address it. I mean, we've had Bonnie Henry saying that we should decriminalize the possession, mm -hmm. uh, possession of these drugs. Um, that hasn't happened. Uh, maybe you need more intervention here. Uh, I, I think we need more uh, treatment and recovery. Of course, people who are desperately addicted, not well, all of them will go into treatment, of course, but... One thing we've learned in this pandemic is nothing's off the table. Again, yeah. I, I've been pointing this out since day one. Um, expect the unexpected. Things we've never thought even possible before are becoming possible, and yeah. and governments are agreeing to policies that were unheard of uh, before the pandemic. So, yeah, going forward, it's not... in The, the chances of decri <coughs> decriminalization have never been better than they were than they are right now the chances of, of free drug distribution have never been better than they are right and now. there is some of that going on but people yep. are wondering if, if if there is enough i mean there are five thousand an estimated five thousand intravenous drug users in the downtown east mm -hmm. side and i don't think all of them are getting us uh you know this this safe supply of drugs that the government's talking well, about. one of the big problems and lisa lapointe the chief corner has talked about this uh is because of the border restrictions it's it's affected the chain of supply for right, the drugs yes. and the drug now, as a result, sort of a side issue, are more toxic. They're being yes. cut with more things. And so they are more dangerous than they were before, and they're less plentiful. 
and that adds up to a very dangerous situation for drug users. Yeah, it's really uh, one of the tragic factors of this pandemic. You're following the numbers closely. We continue to do well in British Columbia, mm-hmm. but I know you look closely outside of BC too, and oh, yeah. the risk may be right across the border in Washington State. What's the latest there? It's amazing. BC is almost an oasis of calm of COVID when you compare us to so many parts of the world. Uh, you know, I look at Washington State numbers every day. Every day at 4.30, an email comes in from the Seattle Times telling me, what the what the new COVID situation is like? They've been averaging almost 300 cases a day. That's a day. Wow. They only one. Their population is one and a half times the size of British Columbia. So they yeah. should be. They're, they're tracking about seven times the number of cases. It's way out they're of They're also tracking about seven times the number of deaths. There's in the last week alone. There's been eight, almost 1,800 cases, almost 60 deaths in Washington State. That's just one border state with us. <coughs> Excuse me. The the number of the United States though. There are seven states at least where the COVID numbers are almost out of control. Texas, uh, Arkansas. Florida, uh, Oregon, California, the, the, the numbers are just escalating rapidly as they come out of that Memorial Day weekend where there was many mass gatherings and where the restrictions started to be eased. Uh, you see a lot of uh, 22 states are now tracking worse than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. But then you step out outside the United States, go to Mexico, Brazil, India, where Again, the deaths are incredibly high from COVID-19, and we're not talking nursing homes here or necessarily all elderly people. This just shows you the perniciousness of this virus and why we have to be on our guard in B.C. Uh, that this thing cannot get out of hand, which is why the U.S. border is going to remain closed for a long time. It's not opening this summer. I don't think it'll open this fall until those numbers in the states get under control uh, and until Ontario and Quebec get under control. The border is simply not going to open. Okay, so we keep the U.S.-Canada border shut down essential to non-essential traffic, right? That's Subject to the odd loophole. I don't know if you've seen this, this story floating around. I've been getting so many emails on this, and it's been all over Twitter. Is this... Uh, Family from Texas oh, yeah, yeah. argued their way across the border saying they were on their way to Alaska. And, of course, they decided to camp in Banff and oh. Texas license plates. It's almost become this urban legend, uh, but there's so much attention paid to this. Are people, are Americans exploiting the loophole? I just, I want to get to Alaska. Let me in. Either they're escaping the states or they're just trying to come in for a vacation. I think it's blown out of proportion, but it's an example of how much nervousness there is out there amongst people about the U.S. border. People okay, what about... We don't want Americans to come in. What about travel within British Columbia, right? We're supposed to well, be going to phase three three pretty soon, which would include people being, hey, go on a vacation in BC, travel within BC, rediscover your own province. John Horgan said the other day he wants record domestic tourism this summer. What's happening there? Bonnie Henry says she wants to go on a trip in BC soon. So uh, the the phase three, which is the next reopening, is supposed to come at least 28 days after the May 19th opening. Those are that represents two incubation periods of the COVID-19 virus. And Dr. Bonnie Henry says she wants to see the numbers through those 28 days. For most of those 28 days, we're not there yet. I think Wednesday would be ideally the, the day we would we would uh, would be the 29th day. Okay. Uh, we'd reopen. Now, a note, uh, we would we were trucking along with pretty good single digit uh, COVID-19 cases every day, and that's pretty encouraging. Friday was 16. We haven't had any numbers since then. We'll see what happens for Saturday, Sunday, and and this morning. We get the numbers at 3 o'clock today. If the numbers, uh, I I suspect if we're below 50 in total, 
that would be online on track for uh, going to phase three. If we're over 50, and I'm just throwing this out arbitrarily, uh, but just again, looking at Dr. Bonnie Henry's response on the numbers every day, if we've been doing it for 90 days now, uh, I think that may be problematic. She has raised the possibility that phase three might be later in June or even early July, but uh, we'll, we'll find out this week if we're going to that. Fa- so phase three is more travel in the province, encouraged to right. travel. Don't go outside the province, but uh, hotels and resorts would open. More provincial parks would open. More campgrounds would open. Um, and just f- to pick one sector, but which the government has picked, is the film industry. Domestic film yep. uh, production would begin as well. So that would be the next phase, and hopefully that starts Wednesday. But we're uh, not going to know that yet. A lot of struggling industries, like the film industry, like the tourism industry, just hoping and praying that we get to this phase three here, maybe this week. So the border remains closed to non-essential travel. Unless potentially you're an NHL hockey player and you're coming to Vancouver to be uh, play on, uh, and Vancouver is a hub city if that is approved. Now, Horgan said famously the other day that, hey, they'd be great if NHL players come here. Bring your family. They'll love it. And you see, you see Bonnie Henry now making it very clear that is not on. Have a listen to this. Here's Bonnie Henry here talking about NHL hockey players and their families. Teams would have no contact with the public, with no spectators and no families. Teams that are in small pods of less than 50, that are in um, what we would call a household bubble. So so it was a very um, detailed, well-thought-out plan that did not involve families coming for the players. Okay, what was Horgan talking about when he was saying, bring the family, this will be great? He was wrong. I think John Horgan sometimes gets a little ahead of himself uh, compared to why Dr. Henry is. So one example was the travel. Um, the Premier left the impression a few weeks ago, now was the time to travel, uh, get out there and travel. And Dr. Bonnie Henry had to come out and say, no, that's not right now. And that's not until phase three. Um, and now we've got another example of, I think, uh, oh, another, another one was the in terms of mass protest. Uh, John Horgan said it was fine as long as you kept your social distance. It was okay to gather in what he called the town square. Well, he said he didn't like it. He was a, he would prefer it not to happen. He preferred these protests not to take place. Sort of, but he said it was you had the right to gather in the town square is what okay. he said. And so he that said, was wear a, a mask. Yeah, and that was a little out of step with Dr. Bonnie Henry, who said uh, no, doesn't want this to happen at all. Now you've got the family situation at NHL players, which uh, I'm sure is going to be resolved. Here's what I think about Horgan and this NHL thing. Is this politics for him? I mean. I mean, is this just what he sees as a political win? If I can be the guy who is given credit for putting NHL back on TV and the games are being played in British Columbia, that's good politics for John Horgan. That's good politics for me and the NDP. Is that what's going on here? Because I talk to people sometimes, why are we even doing this? It's not like we're getting a big economic bounce out of it. You can't go to the games anyway. I think it's John Horgan being a sports fan. I don't think it's John Horgan being looking at the politics of this. I don't think he had a big meeting with his advisors and say, aha, here's what we'll do this. He sure seems to want it bad. But like they put a lot of resources into making this happen. He's got staff working on it. Again, I think it's because he's a sports fan. And I think it's part of them trying to open up things along with uh, surviving in a pandemic. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking with Keith Baldry, your calls to him, 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Greg calling from Vancouver Island. Hi, Greg. Hey there. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering with this CERB, um, why I, as a middle-class tax-paying citizen, am paying other people's mortgages. I know that they're not going to help me pay mine. 
So those people that received the CERB, why would they not be entitled to pay it back? Why should I be able to? Well, it's a form of social assistance. You don't pay back your welfare check. Um, it's uh, in a pandemic when you've it's got... An it's an emergency benefit. That's what, right? Yeah, we've got uh, in BC almost 14% unemployment. We've got millions of people out of work. If you were not to uh, give them some assistance... Um, your mortgage, you're, you'd be hard pressed to hang on to your house because this economy would completely collapse. You'd have people, um, in dire, uh, situations, both in terms of personal health and finances. So no, this is a, an emergency benefit. That's the, the key word in, in CERB is not Canadian, not response, not benefit, emergency. Emer it's an emergency, and it's supposed to be short-term. Now, Trudeau announced an extension of it this morning. A lot of people are starting to max out in their CERB because you can only go on it for four months, I think, is the yeah. max. So, so I think reaching the first maximum, people are maxing out on it. So now it was, they're extending it. We predicted at the very beginning of this thing it was not going to end at the first expiry date. It was going to no. get extended, and you're going to see that in all sorts of relief programs, both federally and provincially. This is going to go on for a long time, folks. Debbie and Langley. Hi, Debbie. Hi. 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 Go ahead. I just, I just have a question about the courts opening up so that landlords who only have rental income, in our case, one house, and we're seniors, so we live on that income. When he thinks, or you know, if uh, they're going to open up the courts so we can evict people who are actually abusing it, we haven't had rent since February. Okay, so you have tenants who are not paying. Why are they not paying the rent? Uh, well, they're just saying that uh, because of COVID, they don't have to, and we can't evict them. Now, we did have a hearing, and we did win the hearing with the residential tenancy branch, but we can't enforce it yet. Yeah, so you have an eviction order. Yes. That you can't that, that can't be enforced. Have you okay. have you applied Have you applied for the benefit, the provincial benefit, to get? Was it? I think it's five hundred a month. No, I didn't know we could. Oh well, you should absolutely do that. Yeah, and and it's and, and it's cru and it's crucial for you to apply for it. Thank you for the call because the landlord has to apply for it. Yeah, the okay, is the on tenant, the landlord. The tenant cannot apply for it. The landlord must must apply for this it. This is this is going to be an interesting. This is an interesting issue going forward. I, I'm not sure if the governments have figured this out. There is a ban on evictions, which was right at the beginning of the pandemic understandably, but more and more landlords find themselves in this position of not of suddenly holding on to this property and not able to get the money to come in to service the property, whether it's property taxes or, or their own basic income. And I'm not sure the government's position at the beginning of a ban on evictions is going to hold. Uh, but I, I would encourage you, caller, please uh, apply for that money because it's there for you in, in the exact circumstance that you're in. And okay. the courts are starting to open. Provincial court is starting to open. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism within the legal community that the courts were un, were wrongly shuttered when you've got big courtrooms where you can practice social distancing, and now you're going to start to see those that court system open a bit. Okay, we've got 30 seconds left. The, the BC legislature is getting set to reopen again, right? A week is that today. happening? Okay. week today, and it's going to look completely different. A maximum of 20 or 30 MLAs in the chamber at any one time. So many of them are going to be virtual through Zoom or Skype. Uh, it's unlike anything we've ever seen before. Thanks for coming in. Talk to you tomorrow. All right, that's Keith Baldry. That is Baldry's Beat. He'll be back tomorrow. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline spill. Now, it happened on the weekend, early Saturday morning at the Sumas pump station in Abbotsford. The Trans Mountain Company is saying approximately 150,000 liters of oil uh, spilled. They said it set off an alarm when it happened. They immediately shut the pipeline down. They are working to recover the oil that spilled. 
There is an investigation going on by the Trans Mountain Company, also by the Federal Transportation Safety Board. What does this mean now for this project? I'm already hearing from activists saying, I told you so. This is what we've been warning about. It's time to shut the project down. Others saying that a spill like this is relatively small in the bigger scale of things, and it's no problem. If you talk to some of the uh, indigenous uh, indigenous leaders in our province, particularly the BC, the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, they say this is another reason to shut down the project. Chief Dalton Silver of the Sumas First Nation says his reserves drinking water is under threat from this spill. Let's talk about it now. I've got both sides of it for you. On the line is Sapora Berman, very well-known environmental activist and writer. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Sapora. Hello. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line is Stuart Muir from Resource Works. They support the Trans Mountain Pipeline and other resource projects in our province. Stuart, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike and Sapora. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you both being here. Sapora, let me go to your first. Your thoughts on this spill? Well, I what we're worried about, in part, is that this is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you got to remember that when Kinder Morgan sold this pipeline to the federal government, they filed with the NEB many examples of exposed pipes. They had been deferring. They had been uh, having economic troubles for a long time. They'd been deferring a lot of maintenance. They'd been cutting corners. Um, and the fact is, every time there is a spill, of which there have been 90 on this existing pipe, five major ones since 2005, we hear it's no problem, you know, we've got it covered. Um, almost every time, that's not true. There's environmental uh, impacts. We need a third-party investigation of the safety of the existing pipeline, but also the expansion plans, because quite frankly, the expansion proposal has been a an economic and an environmental boondoggle that's been a lot more about politics than it has been about good engineering and design. Do you, do you think, though, that this spill, if, if we talk about it on kind of relative terms, I mean, 150,000 liters of oil. So if you picture one, I saw one guy put it this way, he said, if you picture a volleyball court, you're talking about a depth of three feet. So imagine a volleyball court and three feet of oil on that court. That's how much spilled here. Is that an amount of oil to worry about, Sapporo? Well, it is given where it is, right? So this was not at the tank farm, but it was um, south of Highway 1 uh, on uh, near McDermott Road. None of the media reports, very few at least, are mentioning that this is above the Abbotsford Sumas, Sumas Aquifer. So there are 19 public and city drinking water wells and numerous farm wells so how much is too much oil and contamination to have in your drinking water? It's also close to the Sumas River habitat for five species of salmon. And, you know, even a little bit of oil. Uh, we've seen the impacts on salmon habitat and salmon populations. Okay. okay, Stuart Muir, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is unfortunate. I, I think that the people at the, the pipeline company are quite distressed by it. it. It doesn't look good, and the timing is terrible. But one thing to keep in mind is that this is the existing pipeline, and I don't know of anyone, certainly not the province of British Columbia, that has concerns about the expansion, but there's no one out there saying we oppose the existing pipeline, which has been in service since 1953. It's been continuously upgraded. Um, you know, another way to speak of the volume of this, and you mentioned the volleyball court, which is a good a good visual, yeah. it's also about one-twentieth the volume in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So it's not a huge amount, but I think the most important thing is here that it's... It, it's not leaking into some pristine wilderness. It's actually in a pumping station where 
it's all prepared for this kind of eventuality because more than 70% of all the incidents that are, are classified as spills or leaks have been in these contained areas. You know, just like if you're in your house, you've got a problem with your, your plumbing, it's probably around the toilet or under the kitchen sink or maybe it's a faucet. You know, it's these mechanical things. And this is a pumping station where that's exactly what happened, the one-inch valve or pipe uh, somehow leaked this out into a contained area that's under very strict management. So the idea that it's you know somehow leaking into into a watershed right now is is so far uh, I haven't seen any evidence of that. Sapora, well, what do you say to that? Well, there's new drone footage um, out, Stuart, which is very concerning. Uh, the drone footage is showing that in fact. Uh, um, a lot of the oil is um, outside of the contained area in a farmer's field um, and has yet uh, to be cleaned up. So I I don't think we know everything we need to know yet about this spill, um, which is why I think there needs to be a third-party investigation um, that is independent, um, both on the spill, on the existing pipeline, because... I haven't seen evidence that it's been continuously upgraded. In fact, that was not filed. It, it was the, That's the opposite of what was filed during the sale with the NEB. So I, I think that there's some serious concerns about this existing pipeline, about the spill yeah. and the impacts of the spill, um, and also about the expansion plans. Right. I think we can't forget that the... This existing pipeline and the existing tank farm were built a long time ago, and cities and populations have grown up now over top and around them. And so that's one of the reasons that the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline is so dangerous, because it means that new infrastructure has to go in that is feet from schools, feet from people's houses. And, and you know, and it, and it poses a risk and a danger at the exact time in the world when the world is actually moving away from using oil and fossil fuels and dramatically increasing electrification and the dependence on renewable energy instead. Stuart Muir. Yeah, yeah, I think one of the factors we see here is a pretty brisk business with the pipeline. Um, every month of delay, for example, in building the new one, is $100 million in lost sales, lost opportunity. And if you're a resident right now of the lower mainland, you're relying on that existing pipeline to get fuel to you because a lot of our gasoline gets to us that way. As as I've said, there's really no one who has an issue with the the residents being supplied with fuels or with the export activity that occurs right now. We're actually seeing ships uh, going to Asian ports right now with a lot of the heavier oil. This spill, by the way, was a lighter or medium grade, which is a lucky thing. Trans Mountain existing pipeline is a batchable pipeline. It has different grades, different kinds of fuels that go through it. Um, and uh, right. it, it is really an essential piece of infrastructure. I, I think the idea that it needs to be upgraded and safe, as the poor says, is absolutely right. If we look at bridges that go back to the 1950s, those are getting upgraded, viaducts, roads. You know, we expect that to be upgraded all the time. And I think uh, the energy infrastructure is in the same category. We don't really see it because it's under our feet, like we see a bridge, but it still does need to be upgraded. Okay, okay Sapora Berman, when, when people who support this pipeline look at this incident, they will say this is a spill that happened in a contained area. It's a relatively small amount of oil. But taking the, the points that you just made about, about the dangers of a, of a spill like this and the threat of more, is this a kind of an I told you so moment for opponents of the pipeline to say this is what I'm talking about? Is this more evidence to shut the expansion project down in your mind? It is. There are huge risks 
and from the very beginning, the scientists have been telling us that if we increase the amount of oil going through um, uh, Vancouver, Burrard Inlet, our harbors, um, that we increase the risk of spills in a marine environment and also on a land environment. And and so, you know, there is no question that, that this existing pipeline needs to be upgraded. No one is saying that we're not going to use oil overnight or that we shouldn't um, be uh, using existing uh, infrastructure and making sure it's safe. The question is, at this moment in history, do we want to expand it? And I think that's why we're hearing, because of the huge risks of the Trans Mountain expansion, that's why we're hearing the city of Vancouver, okay. the city of Burnaby, many Indigenous nations, and hundreds of scientists, um, and of course thousands of people. I mean, 10,000 people marched on Burnaby Mountain last year saying, no, we don't want to do the expansion, but yes, let's make sure the existing pipeline is safe, and then let's plan to wind it down over time as our society moves away from oil. Stuart, what do you say to that? I think there's there's some you know a variety of aspirations as to what the future holds, and we have to be open minded about that. One one physical fact about the pipeline expansion is that the first spread, the way this works is it's divided into what they call spreads. They don't just build it all at once, and there's about seven spreads. The first one, spread one, is in Edmonton, and that's 70% complete already. So they've already put that, committed that, uh, a, a significant portion of a 12 billion dollar project. So I think the momentum for this to happen is very unlikely to stop the the important thing we ha- is that we have to make sure it gets done right. We've seen that 14 of the first 15 First Nations in the area where the spill is, they've been through years of consultation on protecting the aquifer, which is not just a, a health and necessity of life, but it's a, a spiritual value for the, the, the Stolo First Nations who are around there, incredibly important to them, and that that must be respected. And the uh, judicial processes that have been used to test this have, have shown that the work is being done what? well. What would you say, Stuart, if you had to sum up the, the number one strongest argument in favor of the Trans Mountain expansion project, what would you say it is? Like the, well, the best argument for pro- yeah. It, it, you know, I, I would agree with the, the, the Prime Minister on this. It's a national uh, necessity. It's in the national interest. That's what our federal cabinet has decided. The vast majority of our MPs have, have uh, aligned themselves with doing this project because they see the necessity and benefits from doing this as long as the environment is protected. Okay. Okay, guys, here's what I'll do. I'll jump in there. We'll come back. We'll talk more about this. My guests are Sapora Berman. She's opposed to the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Stuart Muir, he supports the project. We saw that spill on the weekend, uh, now under investigation. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking with the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project, looking at that spill that happened on the weekend, Sapora Berman is my guest, and Stuart Muir, 604-280-9898 is the number to call, star 9898, toll-free in your cell. Let's go to your phone calls right now. Bill on the line in Coquitlam. Hi, Bill. Hey, Mike. Uh, Mike and guests, um, thanks for the opportunity. Sure. I've taken uh, a good hard look at the uh, installation of this new pipeline and what we've had currently in the ground. And the thing that amazes me, to this day is that even in the new technology, we're not having the very best of industry standards on the smallest lines, i.e. flow valves that automatically shut off electronically any of the small or large pipes. We have one-inch pipe that broke, who knows whether it's four hours it pumped out at or 16 hours. It, it can float varying levels. Okay, what, so what is it? I don't can really you get your, stand anywhere point? on it except to make sure that we put in nothing but the technological best 
to ensure that any time there is a rupture at any part of the line, yeah. it automatically shuts off. That's well, I believe that happened in this case. Stuart Muir, uh, looks there like was an alarm. Control center um, picked up on it quite quickly. The exact time, I don't know, but we know how much volume leaked. And it's a pipeline that moves 300,000 or is capable of moving 300,000 barrels a day. It leaked between, what, 900 and 1,100 barrels. So uh, that could be as the little as, you know... A few minutes to maybe a few hours. The company said in a news release on on the week. And by the way, I'm going to have I got Ian Anderson from the Trans Mountain Company coming on later, and he can go into more detail on this. But the company said in a news release on the weekend that they received an alarm early in the morning and then immediately shut the pipeline down as the investigation began. Sapora, your do you have any thoughts on that about how quickly they responded to this? I don't think we know. Um, because we don't know exactly uh, when the alarm o- went off compared to when they shut it down, and there's different accounts coming out. And, you know, and I think listening to Ian and seeing the press release from the company um, is a bit like the fox watching the hun- hen house. That's why we need uh, an independent investigation, because if you look at the previous record, I mean, let's be clear, these companies consistently uh, underplay um, these spills. And there's been a number of spills that have had significant impacts uh, in the community. And at the beginning, the first announcement is it always, we've got this covered. Okay, there is an independent investigation going on. The Transportation Safety Board is involved there. Let's go to David on the line in White Rock. Hey, David. Hey, good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. So, so um, uh, I in a, my former job was BC Hydro. I okay, yeah, terrible, terrible phone connection there. Um, I'll get Amir, see if you can clean that up, and then maybe you can try him again. In the meantime, let's go to um, Steve in Delta. Okay, Steve. Hey, guys. I I look at it in a couple ways. Of course, they have to be responsible, but they're replacing an old pipeline, so chances are the old pipeline will rupture. So it's going to be an upgrade. It's going to be less stress on the old one. And Sephora said, you know, 10,000 people showed up. But there's, you know, 4 million people in B.C., so, you know, let's put it in perspective people who want the pipeline don't go on a protest so we have to look at the silent majority also once in a while and the pipeline is going through areas where it's a doubled up pipeline so you know of course they have to do better and they have to prevent spills but you know we can't live with a 50 year old pipeline and we can't live with all this oil sitting in alberta and, we, and you know let all the terrible terrible dictators sell all their oil around the world at least we should do that and I know Sapporo will think that's a lame excuse, but it is a fact. Sapporo, what do you say to him? Um, well, first of all, I, I don't think it is. Um, I, I, so a couple of things here. One is that if they were replacing the old pipeline, it would be a different conversation. They are not. They have explicitly said they are not. They're expanding the network, expanding it with a new pipeline that will go beside the old pipeline, and they still, in some cases, not just beside, but in some cases beside, you're correct, and and so that they will have two pipelines. And right. and so, you know, I think it's a, it would be a very different conversation if the conversation was, look, we've got an old pipeline and we need to replace it. No, they're expanding it. And what the expansion means is that it facilitates significant expansion of the oil sands at a time when we have rock-bottom prices. No major analyst globally is, is, is expecting $80 price. And, and yet that's the price that this project okay. was predicated on. Okay, Stuart, we just got a minute left. Stuart Muir, go ahead. Yeah, I think the economics of this one are solid, 
And Canada needs market access. A lot of other countries, Russia can build a pipeline to China. The U.S. has got a vast world market. It already accesses through its ports. Canada right now is bereft of the ability to get its oil to the highest value markets. And that's what this is about. And as we go through COVID, we're racking up the debt. We need jobs. This is going to be one of the things that helps us to do that safely, environmentally, soundly over a long period of time. Okay, thank you very much to both of you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the calls on the open line as well. My thanks to Sapora Berman. She is an environmental activist and writer opposed to the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. Stuart Muir from Resource Works. All right, welcome back. Let's uh, continue talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline spill that occurred on the weekend. You heard our previous segment there with opponent opponents of the pipeline and also a supporter of the pipeline opponents of the project saying this is an i told you so moment this is what we are warning about let's check in now with ian anderson he is the president and ceo of the trans mountain corporation i'm very pleased to welcome him hi thanks for doing this my pleasure mike good morning good morning to you can you explain to our listeners uh, exactly what happened there on saturday yeah, what happened was uh, late Friday night, about 11 p.m., um, an alarm was sounded at the Sumas station, um, and the station was immediately shut down and automatically shut down, and our operators commenced the shutdown of, of the pipeline immediately thereafter, and it was closed within minutes. We had a, a coupling on a one-inch uh, piece of uh, really what was steel piping attached to the main line that's, that's intended to draw off samples of the main line for regular testing of the commodities that are going through the line. That coupling failed, uh, and as a result, we had uh, we had the, the release uh, on the site. Uh, it's contained to our property, and cleanup continues. Okay, so the alarm went off Friday night, and when you say that it was shut down immediately, do you mean that was, like, that was all automated, like it, it shut down on its own immediately? The station was automatically shut down uh, immediately with the alarm sounding. And then the control center operator gets that alarm. Uh, he uh, verifies that alarm, uh, and then he immediately commences shutdown procedures for the automated valving that are attached to our main line. And if you can imagine, it's not like a light switch that you turn off and on. Uh, it takes a few minutes for that valve to close and for that segment to become isolated. But uh, the actions were automatic and immediate. Okay, we still, though, had a, a spill of 150,000 liters of oil, approximately, correct? Yep, yep. We're okay, if it, went on, right if, it was shut down, if it was shut down immediately, how come 150,000 liters of oil spilled? Well, it's because the pipeline itself has, has line fill. The pipeline is still full, so it's the drain-down effect of what's in the line that's coming into the station is what we saw get released uh, on the site. So the valve was shut upstream and downstream of the station. The station goes shut down, but within the pipe itself, uh, you know, it's a large diameter pipe that's full, and that's the drain-down effect. Okay, speaking to Ian Anderson, he's the president of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So when, when people hear about this, a spill of 150,000 liters, that sounds like a lot. How, what do you say to the public on this? How, how would you quantify that? Would you think this is a minor spill? I mean, how would you describe it? Uh, Mike, what I would say is any spill is uh, is is material, and, and we take every spill seriously, and and uh, our emergency response is prepared for uh, every size of spill. Th- this would be a, a material spill for us. I mean that that's a, a material what that volume. Mean? What does that mean, material spill? Well, it's it's not a small, insignificant spill. 
Uh, it is one that did trigger our, our formal incident command center. It triggered communication regulators. It triggered involvement of local uh, authorities. So uh, we practice these kinds of exercises regularly. We were prepared for it. We had people on site within an hour. And we had our incident command set up uh, the next morning uh, with full response capability. Uh, everything was contained to our property. Uh, so I think it's, uh, like I said, every spill is taken very seriously. And, and we will do a complete investigation. And uh, any of our learnings from that investigation will be in- incorporated into our maintenance procedures. Okay. Is there also an independent investigation going on? Uh, I would expect the the CER, the regulator, will do their investigation. The Transportation Safety Board has uh, advised that they will do an investigation into the cause uh, of uh, the incident and the response uh, by us uh, to the incident. So there will be several layers of investigation done, and, and they're typically done quite quickly. And I can say that ours will be done very quickly. We've already got the, the failed piece of coupling off-site uh, being investigated uh, as we speak to determine what went wrong with it. Okay, when you say that the the oil that spilled was contained on your property, are, does that mean there is no threat to any water supplies there? Because I'm looking at the reaction from people nearby, Chief Dalton Silver of the Sumas First mm-hmm. Nation. He says that his reserves drinking water comes from an aquifer in the area. He says it's a swampy area. My concern is seepage into the ground. He's wondering about the effect on their drinking water. What can you tell them? Well, we've got on that site, uh, in recognition of the fact that, that we're sitting on top of, of an aquifer, we've got 20 uh, well monitoring sites uh, there. Uh, we're testing them as we speak. We've tested about half of them so far, and we have found no impact to, uh, to groundwater or any aquifer water. Uh, the results have come up clean, uh, so that's telling us that the commodity that was released is sitting on the surface or shortly below the surface uh, of the ground, and we're collecting it as we speak. The free oil that was sitting on the surface was all recovered within hours, and now we're going underneath that into the top layers of the soil and reclaiming that. So all of our testing, and we'll continue our water testing um, indefinitely to ensure that uh, that aquifer and that the groundwater in the region stays safe, but there's zero indication right now that there's any contamination of any groundwater. Okay, I'm looking at some of the photos of the area, and I see some grazing land where, where I guess, some cows normally graze. Was there any impact in that area and those animals? No impact to the animals. There was some cattle on the property that we we shoot away first thing in the morning, and uh, that's land that we own uh, that is leased out to a farmer for grazing. So the cattle were uh, protected. There was some uh, surface oil that that went uh, through a culvert into that field. It was immediately collected uh, the next morning, and we're now in the process of skimming off the the top couple of feet of soil in that area to uh, ensure that there's no residual contamination on the soil. But uh, there's been no impact, as I said, to uh, right. uh, to the animals or to uh, the the you know the use of that uh, property. Okay, so the animals would be allowed to go back out there and start grazing again. Well, yeah, because the vast majority of that site was was unaffected, and we will have fenced off the area that we will continue to work in. All right. Speaking to Ian Anderson from the Trans Mountain Corporation, what do you say to people who were already saying this is an I told you so moment, this is the type of risk we're talking about with this project, this is another reason that the expansion of the pipeline should be shut down? How do you respond? 
Well, I mean, the expansion has been studied for years. Our emergency response plans have been um, in place for years and are continuously tested. Uh, these are industrial facilities, and um, uh, we treat them accordingly. So our response plans are reviewed with our regulator. We test them regularly. This one worked to perfection. We, we were there uh, immediately. We were responding immediately, and my crews have been there ever since. So I think that, uh, you know, we're, 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 we learn from every incident. Uh, investigations always turn up, uh, you know, have findings, um, and, and, and we'll look for those through this one. But I think that the demand for, you know, the movement of these commodities to market, um, you know, by pipelining is still by far the safest means of transporting oil and oil-related products. Uh, we're designing and going to build a brand-new, uh, you know, uh, pipeline uh, with heavy, thick walls with uh, high-tech leak detection. Uh, and we've been working on that engineering for a long time, and the project is underway. So I think that uh, we'll learn from this, um, and we'll uh, we'll incorporate any findings into our overall plans. But uh, everything has worked the way we expected. Does this indicate any need to replace the old pipeline? Because we're talking about the expansion project is laying in a new pipe. Mm-hmm. There's already an existing pipe that's been there for many decades, and th- this is where the leak occurred, right from the from the existing project. So does that does that indicate that maybe the old pipeline is is past past its due date and should be replaced? No, not at all. The existing pipeline is in is in very good condition. Our integrity program, tens of millions of dollars spent in maintaining that pipeline every year. Uh, this was a fitting uh, within a a manifold in a in a complex uh, station. And uh, in fact, the fitting itself, uh, I understand, is not very old. Uh, but it, but uh, we have to review why it failed, and what failed about it. But it, it doesn't reflect at all on the condition of the main line whatsoever. Okay, last question for you. We've seen during this pandemic some oil prices uh, going down and uh, decreased demand during the pandemic. What would you say about the current economics of the expansion project, which is now owned by the citizens of Canada after the federal government bought it? I mean, is this project still economically viable? Yeah, we've looked at that very closely, and we've been in constant contact with our shippers and our customers. Our pipeline has remained full, uh, even despite you know some of the reduced demand for for gasoline in the in the transportation market. Uh, the pipe has remained full uh, every day, and will continue to for the foreseeable future. And uh, our customers remain committed to the expansion. Our, our expansion plans and the commercial underpinning of it were largely built on existing production in Alberta. So even so, even though we've seen a, a bit of a downturn in future projects in Alberta, um, we're still going to provide access for those shippers to world markets that they don't have access to today. So it, it, the project is in as high demand as it was before, and uh, remaining full you know, during this pandemic period is, is uh, proof of that. Thank you for your time today. You're most welcome, Mike. I, I appreciate it. That is Ian Anderson. He is the president and CEO of the Trans Mountain Corporation. Uh, talking about that spill that we saw on Saturday in Abbotsford, 150,000 liters of oil spilled at a Trans Mountain facility and a pumping station there. You heard him say that they, they feel that the system worked properly here. An alarm went off. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk now about public attitudes toward the COVID-19 pandemic. The numbers in British Columbia continue to be encouraging. Do you think people are letting their guards down 
a little bit. Maybe they're changing their behavior when it comes to social distancing or going out to places maybe they would have been hesitant to visit before. And also, what about the impact on people's emotional well-being during this pandemic? Are a lot of people getting fatigued and getting a COVID-19 burnout. Let's check in with Shachi Curl now. She's the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute. They've got a fascinating new poll on this. Hi, Shachi. Hey, Mike. Hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, when we take a look at some of the COVID-19 numbers, especially in BC, we continue to see kind of a, a, an encouraging trend. Is that change? Are people changing their behavior? They are. I think we're starting to see a bit of a softening around the amount of vigilance. So everything from hand washing to keeping a distance from others, not shaking hands, not hugging. I think, you know, in some cases, people may be feeling, well, the worst of the of the situation is over. And indeed, yeah. British Columbians do think that in, in, in terms of the health pandemic. But it could also just be, you know, our mindsets are such that it's hard to kind of keep anything up for a long period of time. And as we start to emerge back into the community, as we start to go out to restaurants and see friends, how many times has it happened, you know, for, for our audience that's listening, where you see a friend you haven't seen in ages and you almost go to hug them or shake their hand and then remember, oh, we're not supposed yeah. to be doing that, but you haven't seen them in so long. So... Behavior is changing. That's probably a little bit alarming for public health officials because those behaviors are still the front line of defense in terms of keeping us okay. Do you think, are people as worried as they were about getting sick themselves at the start of this pandemic? I remember when all this started, there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of worry. I remember in in our own family, my son works part-time in a grocery store. We thought, should you quit your job? You know, we were, we were worried he continued to work. Now the anxiety's gone down. I don't worry about him as much going to work anymore as I did at the beginning. What are you finding in your in your poll on that? Yeah, it looks like an arc, Mike. So at the very, very beginning of it, you know, like February, March, concern about you yourself getting sick, concerned about people in your in your family or family and friends outside of your household getting sick. That was all pretty low. And then as we started seeing cases ramp up, as we started hearing about people that we know either getting sick or tragically dying from uh, COVID-19, then that level of concern really tracked up. It, it, it was at its peak at the beginning of April, both in terms of personal concern and worry for friends and family. Those numbers have started to trend way back down to where they were before the pandemic was declared. So back sort of to the time around the beginning of March before the stuff really hit the fan, so to speak. But there's still a heightened level of concern about um, infection in the community. Like there's still a sense that, oh, it's out there. And we are continuing to be worried about our vulnerable loved ones. So if you've got elderly parents or if you've got a loved one that's immunosuppressed, you continue to be worried about them. Are you seeing any differences on a regional basis across the country? Like here in British Columbia, we've done a pretty darn good job of bending down this curve, and maybe people are feeling a little less worried here. But I'm wondering about a province like Ontario, where they they continue to still fight, I guess, bigger numbers than we've had proportionally. Is there public attitude differences in other provinces? 
Yeah, big time. So in terms of behavior, the most the most vigilant behavior continues to be found in Ontario, where people are really sort of continuing to observe the rules, keep it, keep an eye out, keep keep mindful around what they are supposed to be doing. I know we saw some some cases out of uh, Metro Toronto when they had a really nice weekend and all these young people started flooding into public spaces. The bigger differences, frankly, are, are less regional and they are more uh, about age demographics. So we're seeing younger people less likely to be keeping the vigilance up. Uh, older Canadians, I mean, basically anyone over the age of 34, 35, that's not that old, uh, continuing to keep that heightened level. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the narrative of the invincible, infallible 20-something. They're the ones most likely to say, I'm tired of this. I'm yeah. done with this. I want to get back to my old life. Shachi, an interesting poll as always. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, you bet. That is Shachi Curl. She is the executive director of the Angus Reed Institute. 911. 911. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. Better lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry, hurry. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.